Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're plugged in here to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, Now, let me go over a couple of key points here. First of all, our uh, engineer. Uh, His name is Alan Dempsey. Remember that name. It's it's an important name. Uh, you'll, You'll be hearing about that name for many, many, many years ahead. Alan Dempsey. And Andrew Herdliska is our producer. He gets this whole show organized for us every week. And uh, Rob Singleton is our first guest, lead pastor of the Summit Church in Centennial, Colorado. His book is out. It's called Overliked, Finding Direction, Courage, and Meaningful Relationships in a Society Crippled by Social Media. Rob, welcome to Orlando. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. How would you describe Centennial, Colorado, to one who's never been there, Rob? Well, I'm sitting in my office right now. Uh, you can see the whole front range. It's about 20, 20 minutes south of Denver, mm-hmm. uh, about an hour from the nearest ski places. It's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Tell me about uh, the Summit Church. Well, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. The Summit Church is um, a Bible-believing, you know, we're very conservative in in our views, but we're pretty contemporary in our approach. Um, And we're in what Huffington Post called the third most unchurched city in America a few years ago. Uh, So it's kind of a challenge. You've really got to win the right to be heard. I spent 21 years planting churches in North Carolina, and I would say, yeah, I guess I would say it was actually easier <laughs> in the Bible Belt, uh, but in some ways more rewarding out here because I'm a I'm part evangelist, so I really love to see people far from God um, brought near through Jesus Christ, and and we're, we've seen probably a couple thousand people in the last five years come to faith in Jesus Christ, so mm. it's really been rewarding. Rob, what did your time at Dallas Seminary mean to you? You know, I, I went there because I was called into ministry when I was 16 and very, very close to the Lord. I went to this place called Word of Life Bible Institute up in Schoon Lake, New York, upstate New York, and all the teachers there that were so incredible seemed to come from this one place, and it was Dallas Theological Seminary. So I knew that I wanted to learn how to study the Word of God before I got into ministry. So to me, I, all my all my evidence pointed to that being the most biblically um, solid, probably the best seminary still on the planet. I still feel that way. It's a it's a really really strong uh, Bible believing seminary. So it gave me the tools. Uh, I'm already uh, wired in a different way. I did Young Life while I was at Dallas Seminary, and so I I learned how to really do incarnational ministry uh, with everything that I was learning. So I didn't just go to school. I didn't want to graduate just be an egghead, you know, just with a bunch of knowledge. So I did Young Life as an area director in North Dallas almost the whole time I was there. So it was a great, great equipping experience. Rob, I, uh, you, you struck a bell. Word of life. Oh, huh. how, how many summers we vacationed. Uh, at beautiful. Wow, that's awesome! Oh, my many many summers, and uh, I spoke up there a few times. Uh, I'd love to get back. I'm friends with Don Locke. He, he went to Dallas Seminary as well. That's the guy who runs it now. Yes, and he's a good friend. His dad, uh, the late Don Locke, was a dear friend. Jack Wirtz, love them, know them all. Harry Ballback, who's still living. They're all all great. All of them are. Uh, yeah, my family's close to all of them. I. Jack worked and stayed at our house growing up. I just, yeah, that's my that's my background. So you'd see our church and you would think, wow, you, that's a pretty conservative background, you know, for how 
just how relevant and edgy. Here's the here's the thing. I don't mess with the Word of God. I don't change that at all. In fact, we're in a series right now. Um, we were calling the Untouchables, and we're dealing with some of the things that pastors won't preach about anymore. What does the Bible say about transgenderism? You know, critical race theory. A, a lot of very very tough subjects, and I think it's honestly it's growing our church. You know, far from shrinking it. I think people are looking around and going, "Won't anybody?" give me hard truth anymore, mm. yet we have a great worship band, and, you know, it's just, it's a really fun, family-oriented place to be that does not compromise the Word of God at all. Rob, what's your new book about? I mean, over life is years in the making, um, you know, I, it, it's funny, it probably started, you know, with me just loving uh, social media and being able to... Social media makes a lot of promises, you know. You're going to have thousands of friends, and uh, you're going to be able to connect with people. And and I think all that is great, but I think a lot of pastors and a lot of people are starting to see the wheels come off this thing. And that, you know, I tell people, and they say, well, what's the harm? What's the big deal? The big deal is, you know, 25 years ago, my wife and I, we bought our first home, and it was a synthetic stucco home. And I haven't forgotten the subject. This This is all relevant. Uh, it made a lot of promises. It was a great siding. You know, it, it brought down heating costs, and air conditioning costs. But about five years into it, they found out that it was so effective in keeping out, you know, the, the warm air, the hot air, and the cold air that the wood inside rotted. So a great, great thing with a lot of promises ended up costing people a hundred times more as they rebuilt their houses. We were part of that. I think social media is a lot like that. It's made a lot of promises, and now that we're, you know, 10, 15 years into it, just a few years into TikTok and things like that, we are definitely seeing the harm and the damage, because people are not just connecting, they're basically getting lost for seven, eight hours a day on these things, and, and giving their lives to it, and starting to worship it, and set up shrines. So the book is about, you know, listen, I'm not anti-technology. I'm, I'm pro-authenticity. It's just warning people how to not let social media basically use them and to make sure that you have control over it. Let's move to the second topic. And uh, the first topic, What what is real? And then what are optics? Kind of a big deal. Tell us about those first two topics. You know, I mean, I, I think in our culture, you started seeing this word optics pop up seven, eight years ago. You mostly saw it on Twitter. It's not a new word, but it's being used different. And people began, you know, somebody would tweet something that was maybe a little objectionable. It could be the truth, but, you know, people would ignore, uh, immediately get on there and say, dude, you better be careful. you got to look at the optics of what you just said. And what they're saying when they react like that is that could cost you your job. That's not politically correct. Be careful. Friends will abandon you. And where that comes into what is real is one of the things, the dangers I'm beginning to see is people don't care so much about what is real and sharing the authentic side of them in social media. They care more about putting out the right optics. Uh, that they think people want so that they can garner a lot of likes and followers and, and almost set up a little Facebook worship center. So their optics are, are now not just what you authentically look like. It's what you manipulate or air filter or airbrush or uh, whatever, or, or type out a, a bio of yourself that's not true so that you can be whatever you think people want to be. So you don't just be popular. And, since it's not real or authentic in a lot of people's cases, uh, it's creating a, just a void and an emptiness that's really, really hurting people. Talk about optics and opposite day. What's that mean? Well, again, in, in the book I, I use, it, and it's a Christian book. It, it's funny. It's been really well received in the secular world, and I'm thankful for that. But as a Christian book, I use King David and King Saul, and optics and opposite day. Or King Saul was you know, like the poster child for narcissism. You know, he wanted the people to like him so much, and without social media, 
you can look at him on how to do life wrong, and that David lived from the heart. And optics in opposite day means that it didn't matter that David was a little kid. That was bad optics to fight Goliath. It was bad optics, um, you know, for God to really use him. Uh, and yet, God went opposite day on it. We used to play a game when I was a kid growing up, and, you know, it was kind of a kind of a put-down silly thing, but somebody would say, oh, man, you're the best athlete here if it's opposite day. My guest is Rob Singleton. Uh, he is in Centennial, Colorado. We've got another segment with Rob. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're plugged into the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. Rob Singleton is our guest, lead pastor of the Summit Church in Centennial, Colorado, his book is called Overliked, Finding Direction, Courage, and Meaningful Relationships in a Society Crippled by Social Media. Well, Rob, we've arrived at uh, this topic, likes versus love. That's topic four. Uh, what's that about? I mean, that, you know, our culture has one word that we just kind of use for everything, love. I love my wife, but I may say I love my truck. Uh, man, I love that new restaurant. And we've got to make that word work. The Greek in the New Testament has a lot of different words um, for love. And likes versus love is just kind of separating through social media what you're getting versus what God created you to get. I mean, social media is getting you likes, but they're not even real. It's really mostly just a thumbs up or a bunch of smiley faces or little emojis. And what God wants you to have is deep, life-changing, agape love. That's the most powerful love there is. That's the kind of love that made Jesus go to the cross for our sins. And um, I'm just trying to tell people, if you chase after shallow likes your whole life, you're going to get to the end of it and just feel like you wasted your life. So it really separates godly love with the world's likes. Talk to me about almost a superhero. Uh, that's, you know, I use a lot of things in the book about, uh, you know, that culture can relate to, and I'm talking about Avengers, and I'm talking about how our society just puts so much stock and money and popularity and things like that that obviously aren't real. And the real superheroes in life are those that sacrifice, and it's really got a little bit to do with the chapter before on agape love. So I just share a series of stories so that people will understand what that real deep love looks like in real life compared to, again, the shallow things we chase after, the billions of dollars people paid all over the world to see Avenger movies uh, about people that are honestly not real, kind of shallow, uh, that you'll never really know. And when you really stop and think about it, it's pretty its pretty much a time waster. You know, I'm not saying it's bad to go to an Avengers movie, but to put your whole life into this shallow stuff, again, is starting to show cracks. Rob, there's a chapter called Real Love and Authentic Friendship, topic number six. What are you writing there? Well, I tell people that... Um, I think the reason that we go after social media so hard is because of something God put in us. We are created for community in the image of God, but we're created for community by community. God has always existed as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, so He's eternally existed in community. And so if we are not in real, deep, authentic community, well, then the only alternative is really to go a mile wide and an inch deep in shallow community. In other words, you know, let me get my friend count up to thousands. Let me get, you know, a ton of people following me on Instagram. And again, the more friends you get, the wider that seems to go, but it doesn't do anything for real deep, authentic friendships. 
And since we were created in God's image, the further away from that we get, again, the more off the rails we're going to get. I now want you to talk about love, kryptonite, and snowballs. Tell us more. <laughs> that, I mean, that's really the kind of taking the whole superhero thing um, to its conclusion. Uh, you know, kryptonite was, was Superman's you know, downfall. That was the thing that you could bring near him and sap his energy and his strength. And and if we're not careful with social media, that can be something that can be fantastic. In other words, we have, as a church and with my YouTube channel and things, we have really leveraged that. We now have uh, many thousands, sometimes 10,000 people a week following us all over the world, learning the truths about God. But if I were to fall for the traps of social media, uh, and not leverage it, you know, to get the message of Jesus Christ out, then it would be nothing more than the same thing it is for really billions of people. It would just be bolstering my own ego, um, creating my own worship center, setting up Facebook as a shrine to me. In fact, if you have more than 5,000 followers, you have to set up a fan page. Just think about what that means. You're calling it a fan page. It's, it's like a mini worship center, and then social media becomes a kryptonite. What could have been a tool um, for great, great things ends up being uh, something that's actually hurting you and killing you. So the whole argument we've been making in the, whole, in the book really comes to a culmination um, using superheroes and kryptonite and real love. I want you to explain topic eight. You call it the love test, Rob. Well, I, I, I got a lot of people that when this book was coming out, we had art copies. It was, you know, advanced reader copies. People were saying, what's wrong with social media? I, I mean, I don't know if I even want to read a book on it because it's harmless and, you know, it's not a problem for me. And contrast that with a, a lot of parents and grandparents that jumped on this fast. We were shocked because they could see the problem. But ironically, they were saying, I want to buy five books for my grandkids. I want to buy... Uh, the study guide for for the young adults in the church, uh, but they kind of weren't seeing it for themselves. So this chapter, you know, kind of kind of is where the rubber meets the road. This is the chapter where if you've been reading and you've been thinking about how this would be good for everybody else, but you don't really think you have a problem, just take the love test and go find out. If you're going to be honest with yourself, uh, if you don't pass that thing, then you, you need to go through this book. You need to go through the love reboot at the end and detox and, and get back on track. Now I want you to move to topic nine, love in the valleys and caves. What's up? Well, that's, that's getting back to David and Saul. Uh, I've been tracking them in the whole book, and Saul's, shallow approach to being a people pleaser. Remember why Saul got picked. He got picked as king because of all the shallow reasons you could, because of optics. The only thing the Bible says is he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else, and that he was handsome. So it was completely shallow. Really nothing is said about his character or his love for the Lord, but David was picked because he has a heart after God's own heart. And yet, he had to spend more than a decade running and trusting God and living in caves and going through valleys. In fact, the most popular chapter in all the Psalms, Psalm, in all the Bible probably is Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It talks about the fact that we all go through valleys, but how can you reemerge uh, on the other side stronger? So God didn't call us to the valley. He called us through the valley. So valleys are used to make us stronger, but for some people, they never get out of them, and they make them weaker. So that takes the whole David and Saul story to a combination. And then we get to topic 10, superheroes and sacrifice. What are you writing here? You know, as as it ends, uh, I'm getting to the sacrifices of David, and I'm getting to the fact that even the movies we love, the billionaire, even the Avengers, um, we know that what real love looks like. We know what uh, the most powerful movies. It's funny. I looked at the 
top 100 movies of all time, and not a single one was a comedy. And, and if you look through there, many of them are like Braveheart or, or even The Passion of the Christ. Uh, we understand why, that's, why that gets to people. It's because Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. So really, really deep love doesn't go after likes, doesn't go after shallow stuff, doesn't care so much about what people think. It loves your fellow man so much that you put them first. You know, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but your neighbor, too, that's the second part, as yourself. So how do you know, part of the love test, how do you know if your love is real? Well, it's really simple. What is your daily life about? You know, who are you spending time with? Are you spending time with the Lord and the Word of God and prayer? Or is most of your life about getting people to notice you? So, again, it's another one of those where the rubber meets the road, and it exposes that even the world in the movies, if they want to have a real game changer, a real moneymaker, a winner, then it's going to grab at your heart in sacrifice. They had a scene in Avengers where... Uh, Black Widow and I think Hawk, or if I remember, I don't remember all the characters, I only saw it once. But one of them has to give their life that the other Avengers can live. It's like the most powerful scene in any Avengers movie, and I don't even know if they knew this. It's ripped off from the Bible, basically. It's, you know, one man would die that, uh, that everyone else can live. There's a reason why that's powerful. It's because the most the most meaningful sacrifice ever made in history, that of the Lord Jesus Christ, is is our model. That's what we look at. That's where the most powerful love was shown to the world. Rob, what do you want people to take from our discussion? You know, I want it's that first thing. I, I want people to know that I'm not I'm not downing technology. I don't I don't want people to go back to the Downton Abbey days or you know horse and buggy or you know, say, join an Amish community, that ship has sailed. And, and I love it. I use technology. But there are ways that, that can get us to cross a line. And, you know, I've made this word up. Overliked is not in the dictionary. I'm hoping it, I'm hoping it is soon. Uh, but when you cross that line to being overliked, uh, you're not living the life that God calls you to live. You're not living the life he molded and purposed and shaped you to live. And that's, that would be the greatest tragedy, to come to the end of your life and realize you lived it more like King Saul. You tried your best just to get people to like you when there was a far better life that God had, which is trying to glorify Him uh, and trying to live the journey and the purpose that He made you to live. I want you to go back, Rob, to our early discussion about your time at Dallas Seminary. Who were, the, sure. who were the professors there that most impacted you to this day? Uh, you know, one of them that came in and, and used to guest speak a lot, our, our Young Life Club grew from nine kids to 400 in about a year and a half. And so I got to speak as a 25-year-old at um, the National Young Life Conference, and I, wa- I was just shocked. I, I didn't really know what to say. But there was this guy who was going to speak with me, Tony Evans, oh. and uh, he had an incredible impact on me. It's funny because I've got a conference coming up in about a month um, where I was told that I'll be speaking with him again. So it's been 30 years, and I thought, I wonder I wonder if he even remembers that. Uh, but he had a tremendous um, influence. Chuck Swindoll, it was the first year that he was there. I was, I was, He's come and gone. Um, I used to go to his church in California. Tremendous. But I was there when some of the oldest guys, Dwight Howard Hendricks, Dwight Pentecost, these are just theological giants that taught me to honor and respect mm. how to study the Word of God. Charles Ryrie. Oh, yeah, he was there, too. Um, by the way, uh, Tony Evans has been a friend uh, to me, oh, I don't know, every bit of 30 years, 40 years, and... Uh, uh, if you if you if you miss everything else, Rob, the Tony Evans Study Bible is out now. It's it's available, and there are study Bibles, and they're good. 
but there's only one Tony Evans study Bible. Oh, it, it's a it's an. Absolute, How long has that been out? A couple of years, and not not I not did super. Not know that. I oh oh, the Tony Evans study Bible is often, and he, and he also has a whole other book. Uh, you know, to Tony Evans commentaries. Uh, I mean, it's just Tony Evans at his at his best. So uh, I'm I'm delighted to hear that story, Rob. That's fascinating, and I'm I'm so yeah. I doubt he would remember, but it had a big influence on me, and maybe I'll try to remind him in October. Well, and 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 greet him, uh, greet him uh, for me as well. So, um, will do, will do. Rob, great to talk to you. I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks for being with me. Rob Singleton, author of Overlight. Folks, don't uh, hesitate in getting your COVID shots. Um, uh, Mayor Jerry Demings is just pleading with our community uh, to get the shots. They're free. Uh, they're effective. doesn't hurt. You know, you've had shots all your life. And, uh, and it, just, it just helps protect Central Florida. And uh, we need to pay attention to that. Well, folks, we got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Rob Singleton, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Overliked. Chris Gerst joins us. He's in St. Paul, Minnesota, professor of history at Bethel University. His book is out, Charles Lindbergh, A Religious Biography of America's Most Infamous Pilot. Chris, welcome to Orlando. I'm uh, excited about talking to you about this book. Thanks, Pat. Me too. What's the background on the book? Why did you write it? What's the story here? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd always wanted to write a biography, and uh, I was trying to find a topic, and um, an editor said to me, you know, Chris, you're, you're, you're Swedish, you're Minnesotan, you're tall, you should take a shot at writing about Charles Lindbergh. So, yeah, so I started reading up on him, and um, this is for a series of religious biographies, and Charles Lindbergh was not very conventionally religious, not a Christian, distrusted churches. But especially the second half of his life was really interested in spirituality and um, divinity and what lies beyond. And so it turned into kind of an interesting story to write. You open the book with a chapter simply called Ancestors. What are you writing here? Yeah, um, Lindbergh makes a lot of family history. So I thought I should start with a little bit about where the Lindberghs came from in Minnesota. And then he also has Michigan family. Uh, and so it's a diverse group. One of his uh, great-great-grandfathers was uh, actually a preacher in Michigan uh, with the Disciples of Christ. Um, but otherwise, not a lot of spiritual background. His his mother was a, was a chemist, a science teacher. Uh, his dad was the son of a Swedish immigrant and a lawyer and a U.S. congressman for about 10 years. Um, and so he grew up not really going to church, but with very um, intellectually curious people. And so I, uh, like, one thing I write about later is, like, the library, the books that were around him growing up. But, yeah, I just thought it was important to understand where he was coming from, especially for my sake. I, I'm the descendant of Swedish immigrants to Minnesota, so I especially connected with telling that part of the story. Uh, then you get to the second topic, a boyhood on and beyond the Upper Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah, so in Minnesota, we like to claim Charles Lindbergh, or sometimes we like to claim him. He spent most of his time growing up in a little town called Little Falls on the Mississippi River, um, kind of in central Minnesota. But because his dad was a congressman, he would spend part of the year in Washington, and then in between Minnesota and D.C., he would visit his family in Detroit, Michigan. So that was just uh, explaining a little bit of that, um, kind of a, a little bit of a chaotic childhood, moving back and forth, but an interesting one with, uh, U.S. congressman as a father. He had an uncle who was a dental surgeon. Um, and then especially his upbringing in Minnesota was what I was um, trying to get at. Now, the winged gospel, topic three. Yeah, it's, I don't know how you think about air travel, Pat. I tend to just find it something you have to endure. Um, it's not especially exciting. I've 
you know, I've flown across oceans a few times, and it's just something I struggle to sleep through. But in the 19-teens and 20s, aviation was new and exciting, and some historians say it was almost like a kind of religion. Like, um, it, it literally brought people closer to God. It, it lifted them towards the heavens. But also, I think people had this expectation that flying would fix some of humanity's problems, like it would create peace and prosperity. And so when Charles Lindbergh decides he wants to become a pilot in the 1920s after he flunks out of college, that, that's kind of what he's tapping into. There's a lot of uh, religious language that goes with flying, even though he's not especially religious himself. So that chapter is kind of set up then what comes next, which is his most famous flight um, uh, to Paris in 1927. Um, tell us um, about the new Christ. Yeah. So Charles Lindbergh uh, flies from Long Island, New York, uh, to Paris in May of 1927. Uh, so this is a contest that had been open for a while. No one had ever made a solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, not long before that, a couple of French pilots had disappeared trying to fly the other direction. But he does it, and he lands in Paris um, one night, and 150,000 people are there at the airport to greet him. And one of them is an American living in Paris, an editor named Harry Crosby, and he, he writes that Lindbergh is the new Christ, and the spirit of St. Louis is the new cross. And so that, that, that chapter is not so much about the flight, it's more about um, why were people so amazed by Lindbergh, and why did they use religious language to describe him? So I talk about how Christians respond to him, and then how other people respond. And, I mean, new Christ sounds a little bit extreme, but I think there is some sense of he's almost like this messiah kind of figure for the 20th century who you know almost 10 years after world war one is going to show humanity a new path uh, that's, that's some of the ideas i'm trying to get at in that chapter well i'll just tell you this story growing up my mother was uh, 13 when he made that flight mm-hmm. uh in the, living in the philadelphia area and she was besotted with Lindbergh. I mean, even even deep into her life, yeah. and and we had in our home this big framed uh, map of Lindbergh's flight, where he took off and where he went and where he landed, and, and I still have it. Yeah. I I still have it, and so Lindbergh is still alive and well in our family. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear that because uh, I talk to other people, and especially like college students that I work with, they they don't even know who he is anymore. Right? They, they haven't even heard of this. I don't think they realize just how powerful a story that was and what an amazing accomplishment it was and why he became then such an important figure for so many people. Tell us about the next chapter, simply called Anne. Yeah, so it's, it's really about two people. It also introduces someone maybe I'll talk about with the next chapter, but it, it's mostly about him meeting his wife. So Anne Morrow is a little bit younger than Charles Lindbergh. A very different background. I grew up in a very wealthy family. Uh, had a really good education. Her dad was a lawyer for a firm in New York. And then by the time of Lindbergh's flight, her dad was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. Uh, and so Lindbergh took a lot of tours after the flight. He toured the United States, but then he took tours of Latin America to promote aviation. And so uh, um, Dwight Morrow, the ambassador, invited him to spend Christmas at the embassy in Mexico City, and he met. Anne Morrow, the daughter of the ambassador, uh, didn't do a whole lot that first time, took her up for a flight, uh, and then a few months later, all of a sudden, out of the blue, he called her, asked to take her out on a date, and after their second date, they were engaged. And so that's the chapter where I tell the story of them meeting, getting married. Um, and she becomes a really important influence for him, and she's almost kind of like the second figure of the book. And in some ways, like her story is kind of a contrast to his story as I go on. And she was a wonderful writer, wasn't she? Terrific writer. Yeah, she's, uh, I mean, like early on, she's very insecure. She's not sure what she's going to do, but she starts writing about aviation. Um, she writes about the, the tours that they take together. She writes novels. Uh, and then in the 1950s, she writes a really great book uh, that I might talk about later that's kind of a reflection on spirituality called Gift from the Sea. Uh, topic six. It's a quote, a cruel god of chance. Tell, yeah. t- tell well, us if, about that. If, if people know anything about Lindbergh besides the flight, it's probably the 1932, um, his firstborn son, Charles Jr., was kidnapped from their home in New Jersey and later found dead, and probably was was killed right away. 
So this is the crime of the century at the time. And, you know, there was already a lot of press interest in the Lindberghs, and this just amplifies it. Um, and so part of the chapter is about um, is about that story. This is not really a book focused on the kidnapping. There are lots of other good books about the Lindbergh kidnapping. It's more about, as best we know, like how Anne and Charles made sense of that and how they grieved. And it's interesting. Charles doesn't say a whole lot about that. And at one point, um, he, he tells his wife, it's a matter of chance, right? You can't control it. There, there's no meaning. There's no purpose to it. But she really struggles with that. She she believes in God. She has a hard time accepting that suffering could just be random. Um, and, and so by the end of the chapter, he, he sounds a little bit different. He even is starting to think that maybe there's something beyond death. Maybe, maybe there is purpose and things aren't just random and chaotic. And so as much as I'm going to write about the kidnapping, that's, that's the chapter where I try to tell that story and, and what it meant for them. The ha- but in the end, after the kidnapping trial, they, they decide to flee to Europe. Uh, because they're so overwhelmed by the press coverage, and that's kind of where we leave off that chapter. Did they have more children? They did. Actually, one of their other sons, John, just died this summer. He was, I think, in his late 80s. So um, ultimately, uh, after Charles Jr., they had six more children. In fact, their second child was kind of born in the middle of this. Uh, I think Anne delivered not all that long after they found the body of of Charles Jr. So... um, the last of their children was born in 1945, Reeve Lindbergh, who's a writer who lives in New England. She's still around. So let me see if my math is right. Um, seven, counting the kid that was kidnapped, seven children? Yep. And yeah, I, <laughs> I probably won't get all the dates right, but... Um, that's, um, that's fascinating. I think two daughters, four sons, um, so between 1931 and, and 1945 is when the other kid. And how many are still living? I think half of them. Um, so John just died. Of course, Charles Jr. had died. Um, their first daughter, Anne, died. Um, mm-hmm. Not too long ago, but um, kind of late 20th century, I think. And I think the other three are still alive. You do a chapter called The Happiest Years. Uh, what are you writing there? Yeah, so because they're so overwhelmed by press coverage, and I think they're legitimately worried for this new son, uh, who had just born, been born John, um, they wanted to have a somewhat normal childhood. But all of a sudden, right right at the end of 1936, they get on a boat and go to England. Um, and they, they flee, and they spend almost three years essentially in exile. They live in England first, and then they move to the coast of France um, at the very end of their time there. And it's, a, it's an interesting time. I don't think we know a lot about it, most of us, but it's a time when... Um, they do a lot of things. This is when Charles starts reading really widely. Uh, they visit the World Religions Congress in, in-, in India in 1937. Um, and this is also a time where they continue to get to know a French uh, scientist named Alexis Carrel, who they had met back in 1930 and 31. And he's a huge influence on Charles Lindbergh, starting to become interested in uh, Eastern religions, supernatural phenomena, um, asking what's beyond what science can tell us. They'd actually done scientific research together, but Alexis Grell was actually a Catholic mystic and was really interested in questions about the existence of God and miracles and the supernatural. And so Charles Lindbergh starts picking up on some of that while he's in Europe um, talking to the Grells. So it's, it's, I mean, it's a chapter I probably knew the least about when I started writing, right? Because they're really trying to hide. They're trying to get some privacy and but it kind of sets up what comes next, because Europe in the mid to late 1930s is on the verge of war, and Charles Lindbergh gets roped into that pretty quickly. Chris Gers is our guest. He's in St. Paul, Minnesota, professor of history at Bethel University. Uh, His book is out, Charles Lindbergh, a religious biography of America's most infamous pilot. Well, we've gotten to that eighth topic, uh, Chris. The Nazi theology. Uh, that's a quote. Uh, tell us more. Yep. Tell us more. Yeah, so this is maybe where the, the infamous part, and I, I, I didn't pick the title, but my publisher, I think, wanted to make clear, this is not just a story of heroism. There's, there's some dark stuff here, too. So in 1936, the U.S. government asked Charles Lindbergh to, while he's in Europe, to, to start looking in on uh, different European air forces. 
And so he goes to the Soviet Union at one point, looks at the Red Air Force, uh, the French, but most famously, he pays a few visits to Nazi Germany to study the Luftwaffe. Um, goes to the Berlin Olympics, gets to Hermann Goering a little bit, and this is really troubling to some of his friends. And one of them even writes later, or it was his published diary, saying that Lindbergh was seduced by the Nazi theology. So this is controversial, right? What what were Lindbergh's thoughts? He claims he wasn't a sympathizer with Nazism, but he certainly admired parts of what Hitler was doing. Um, we might talk about anti-Semitism a little bit later. Um, but this is where I, I try to think about why was Hitler then drawn to Nazi Germany? What was it about that? And we introduced, he really wrestles with his feelings about um about the place of Jews in modern society. He has Jewish friends, but he also has some um, less-than-kind things to say about the Jewish people. And so by the end of that chapter, he decides to come back to the United States. And he does that not so much because he's trying to avoid the war itself, but he wants to come back and convince Americans not to get involved in a European war. My guest is Chris Gers. We're talking about his book, Charles Lindbergh. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, more with Chris talking about Charles Lindbergh right after this. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Chris Gers is the author of Charles Lindbergh. That's the new book. Uh, Chris is with us. We've arrived at topic number nine, Chris. Uh, it's called America First. Uh, what's going on now with Lindbergh? Sure. So by the spring of 1939, the Lindberghs have come back to the United States after being in Europe for a few years. And he quickly gets involved in this big debate about whether the United States should join World War II, which starts in September. Um, and uh, most Americans probably don't want to be involved in World War II at that point, really. It's, it's, uh, they have bad memories of World War I. They don't see that it involves them, and, and Lindbergh speaks to this. He gives radio addresses. He writes articles. And by 1940, he's part of a new movement called the America First Committee, which is a, it's a group of lots of different kinds of people who, for lots of reasons, want to keep the U.S. out of World War II, and Lindbergh becomes one of the primary spokesmen for that committee and gives speeches at places like Madison Square Garden and the Hollywood Bowl. Um, but also he comes back to his home state and speaks in Minneapolis about this. And so most of that chapter is about that debate. And, and this is where Lindbergh and Franklin D. Roosevelt develop a really contentious relationship. Um, and ultimately, this is where Lindbergh, again, becomes a very controversial figure. I, I mean, there, there were... The strong arguments, 1939, 1940, about the U.S. not getting involved in World War II. But in September of 1941, Lindbergh goes to Des Moines, Iowa, and gives a speech where he says that different forces are trying to uh, essentially lure the United States into the war. And he blames the British and the Roosevelt administration, but then he also blames the Jews. And he says, you can't blame the Jews for being upset about Nazi Germany, but their interests are not our interests, he says. Um, as if American Jews are not really American. And it just sparks a, a huge outcry. Um, people resign from the committee. Um, people across the political spectrum condemn him as an anti-Semite. And uh, the chapter ends then with Pearl Harbor, basically. And the committee folds up, and Lindbergh says at that point, it's time to get behind the war effort. Uh, tell us now about the chapter simply called The War. This was fun to write because I teach World War II history, and I was kind of curious what Lindbergh's role was, because I think a few of us know Lindbergh opposed the U.S. entering the war, but he wasn't opposed to war. And once the war started, he felt like it was his duty to take part in it, um, but he had resigned his Army Air Force commission, and the Roosevelt administration was pretty skeptical about Lindbergh. And so for most of the war, he's simply reading and writing, and then he's a test pilot for Henry Ford up in Michigan with the B-24 bomber. But then finally, in 1944, he's given a chance to go to the South Pacific, and he, you know, it's really to kind of try out a couple of planes that the Marines and the Army are using against the Japanese. 
The Lindbergh actually flies 50 combat missions. Uh, he shoots down a Japanese plane. He bombs Japanese positions. But for me, what's really interesting is he, re- he gets a diary this whole time. He's really troubled by what's happening, and he reflects on how Americans treat the Japanese. And this is also the first time in his life he starts reading the Bible. And specifically, this is where he starts reading the Gospels and is really interested in who Jesus was. Um, and, and keep talking about this, but he kind of struggles. Like, he really is never a Christian, but he does feel like there's something about Christ that's really compelling to him. And it's during the war that this really starts to become important to him. Beyond Flight is your next chapter. So after World War II, Charles Lindbergh keeps busy with a few different things. Uh, He gets involved in nuclear weapons research. He advises the Air Force as the Cold War gets started. By 1948, he publishes a short book called A Flight in Life, in which he says that maybe we've been putting too much emphasis on science and technology, and we're forgetting the importance of ethics and of the wisdom that comes with religion. And so it's a short little book. It's only about 60 pages, but he, he talks about Jesus a lot. He quotes Jesus, among other figures, and says that if the West is going to survive, it needs to balance science and religion. It needs to balance technological progress, but also um, the wisdom and restraint of, of these great thinkers. Five years later, he publishes his best-known book called The Spirit of St. Louis, which gets him the Pulitzer. And it's just his story of flying for 33 and a half hours across the ocean. And so to fill up that time and make it more interesting, it's full of flashbacks. And he thinks back to his childhood in Minnesota and to his upbringing and to learning to be a pilot. And it's full of all these reflections on death and mortality. And he thinks about, does God exist? How could he not exist? And he says at one point that his plane uh, was suddenly filled with these kind of ghosts or phantasms who talked to him. And so it's this very popular book, but it's a very strange book. And it's, it's, I think for a lot of Americans, it was the first hint that Charles Lindbergh was really interested in the supernatural and the spiritual. Um, but he also makes pretty clear that he's not really a Christian. He doesn't really fit organized religion. Um, he writes an article the next year that um, describes God in, in very vague kinds of terms and actually bothers some of the Christian readers of the magazine. Do you think he... Uh... Had it ever accepted Christ at any point? Do you think he became a believer? I don't. No, I, I think he regarded Jesus as a wise teacher, and at least some of Jesus' teachings he tried to apply, but there were other aspects of Jesus he didn't like. Like, I don't think... Um, Charles Lindbergh believed that life is driven by violent competition, and specifically, he really did believe in racial competition. And so I think he had a hard time with a Jesus who preaches love of neighbor, love of enemy, reconciliation, mercy, humility. I don't think that fit too well. And he certainly didn't believe in, say, the resurrection. And that, that seemed too strange for Lindbergh to believe. So he comes really close, but um, he, has a fr- he has a friend from Florida, actually, a guy named Jim Newton, who's a Christian businessman, and, and Newton tries to talk to him about God and Jesus. And Lindbergh at one point just tells him, I, I can't go that far. I, I can't share that belief. You're my friend, and I appreciate you, but that's, that's not me. So, I mean, it's a little bit disappointing. Like, part of me would like to write a conversion story, right, and say that at some point, maybe after World War II, or he had marital problems in the 1950s, like, you know, that would have been the point he would have seen. He needed something more, but he just never goes that far. Chapter 12 is called The Last Years of Lindbergh. Uh, tell us more. Yeah, so um, Charles Lindbergh dies in 1974 of cancer, of lymphoma. Um, but his last, so it covers kind of the last 15 or 20 years, and it's, it's a mix of things. Like, I start with this secret that was only revealed about 20 years ago. So in the 1950s and 60s, Charles Lindbergh had affairs with three women in Europe and had seven children. Um, outside of his marriage, and they didn't even know who he was. And none of this came to light until not even 20 years ago when some of the European children shared this. So I talked about that, but I think what's, what he's best known from these last years are a couple of things. He gets really interested in environmental conservation, um, endangered species, um, and specifically he's interested in places like Africa, the Pacific. But he also helps create a national park in northern Minnesota called Voyagers. 
And he's also, at this point, he's really interested in um, peoples in Africa, like the Maasai, or he visits American Samoa, and he gets to know people in the Philippines. And kind of at the end of his life, he starts to think, maybe we're too obsessed with technology. And maybe there's something about a simpler kind of life closer to the Earth that's more attractive. And so near the end of his life, he and Anne buy a house or build a house in Hawaii, and that's where he chooses to die. And... Um, and flies there once he knows that there, there's no hope, and that's where he's buried uh, to this day. And then your last chapter, and we've got about a minute here, uh, Chris. Sure. Uh, your last chapter is simply called Of Death and Afterlife. Yeah, so it, it, it partly tells the story of his of his last days. Uh, he planned his own funeral, and it's kind of a it's mix of, there's some, there's some Christian aspects to it, but there are other religions there, and uh, he puts the words of Psalm 139 on his tombstone. Um, kind of alluding to the idea that God is everywhere with us, even in the air and in the ocean. But it's also the chapters about how people debate who Charles Lindbergh was. Um, and one person I was really privileged to get to know is his daughter, Reeve. And, and she especially helped me both wrestle with the really controversial part of his father's life and the unsavory parts of it, but also to see the kind of spiritual curiosity he had and to try to do justice to that. So that, that's where we leave things off in that last chapter. Chris Gers has written quite a book, uh, Charles Lindbergh, A Religious Biography of America's Most Infamous Pilot. Well, folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando, and we're always so pleased when you join us. Have a wonderful week ahead, and uh, except I have just misplaced one thing. We've got to do a one-minute wrap-up. So we're going to do a one-minute wrap-up, and uh, and then we'll sign off. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. I just want to remind you folks here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour that my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership, and we look at 25 leaders who were so critical uh, during the Revolutionary War period, helping these 13 little colonies uh, win a war against Great Britain that they had no business winning. Great Britain had better everything. They had better armies and better navies and better supplies and better weapons. They had better everything, except uh, the Americans had better leadership. That was the difference. And we take a look at these uh, 25 key leaders, do a chapter on each one of them. I think you'll enjoy it. Revolutionary Leadership by Pat Williams. Ravel is the publisher. Well, we're back next weekend for more. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, stay tuned to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Just stay tuned all day long, and your life will be better for it. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word.